Support for Talking Art on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Ilmar Gavilan, a member of the Grammy Award-winning Harlem Quartet. We'll be in residence here from October 21st through the 25th as part of the Quad City Arts Visiting Artists series. Welcome, Ilmar. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. Thank you. Now, the mission of the Harlem Quartet includes building diversity in classical music and providing access to musical education for underserved communities. And, and that's a tall order. How, how are you accomplishing that? Well, we, uh, we realized very early on uh, that when we were doing our outreach uh, activities in Harlem, that it's, uh, the kids were literally one stop away uh, from Carnegie Hall. Um, literally, like the A train, you take it in 125th Street, and one stop later, you're in 59th, which is the stop for Carnegie Hall. And very often, we will ask, have you ever been in Carnegie Hall? And and, and they will raise their hands, no. Um, and and we, we realized that uh, the breakdown uh, was simple. Uh, they didn't know how to relate to the music that we were playing. Uh, that So that's one of the, the ingredients. And... Uh, uh, we figured that uh, looking a little bit more like them really helped catch their attention. But even more than that, the way of conducting ourselves in a more uh, friendly manner and the type of repertoire we start uh, offering in this kind of outreach, uh, meaning incorporating more Latin and more jazz-oriented repertoire, really helped. Uh, break the ice, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And you do play a very diverse repertoire, and we'll get to that in a minute. But w- what do you think are some of the biggest reasons that people of color have been underrepresented in classical music? I think, um, again, it has something to do with the self-image. Um, that's why it's so important for uh, people of color to to go into uh, communities of color and and reach out um, I believe really has it comes down to advertisement and that sort of things. Like uh, most, you know, heroes for for kids in Harlem will be like Michael Jordan, who uh, you know represents everything like a little uh, uh, African American kid wants to grow up to be. Um, and then, how often have they seen like a, an African American violinist, or not very often? Uh, so it, it has something to do with that, with the exposure. And um, and also it has something to do with uh, the perception that classical music is for older people, uh, usually from, um, you know, Caucasian background. Uh, perhaps they never try uh, going in a concert because they just it, it's just awkward for them. So uh, by breaking these stereotypes, these barriers and coming to them, I think uh, very, very, very quickly that wall goes down, and 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 I can talk to you a little bit more about how we conduct this uh, outreach, but it really has to do with uh, communication rather than a lecture from the position of I know something you don't. Rather than that, uh, we turn it into a fun, interactive experience that proved to be very successful so far. Mm-hmm. How did your quartet originally come together? 
Well, we will put together actually by the Sphinx organization, um, the four original members, uh, I think 13 years ago already. Yeah, 13 years ago, we were all first, first prize winners of the Sphinx competition. Um, the Sphinx competition uh, is, is, in our, is part of a larger organization, which is the Sphinx organization, and their sole purpose is to diversify classical music. Yeah, and that's just a really a beautiful message. Um, I saw it was founded back in the 1990s, and it's a by Aaron Dworkin, and it's a Detroit-based national organiza- organization that's really transforming lives through increasing diversity. Yeah, they they have done they've done an amazing uh, job and continue doing a great partnership with orchestras, uh, where sometimes the orchestras uh, have an apprenticeship program and um, uh, and invites uh, participants of Sphinx to to audition and and just join these partnerships. Uh, there's many um, uh, summer camps around the country which also partner with Sphinx and uh, they've just done and, and continue doing a really wonderful job. Mm-hmm. Now you began rehearsing in a space in Harlem after the quartet was formed. And, and I think the, your name derived from that in a way, what, why is Harlem as a, as a physical location important to you? Um, we always thought of Harlem, uh, the Harlem Renaissance, that era in, in the, you know, in the 20th or so, where African-Americans from diverse parts of the United States found uh, Harlem to be a beacon of, of culture and um, professional African-Americans to congregate. And uh, I, every time we look at these pictures and, you know, the whole movement of, uh, of African-Americans uh, coming from all over there, uh, it's just a very, um, it's a very positive uh, Mm-hmm. and symbolic uh, image. And not that we wanted to think of ourselves as a new Renaissance, but we absolutely intended to to be part of that, let's say, second Renaissance of Harlem and what it, you know, and the symbol it is for, for the rest of the African-American community in the United States and actually the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of this um, this photo of a, of a group, a large group of jazz musicians, musicians that are standing outside this Harlem brownstone in the 1950s. You've probably seen it. Um, I love it. Yeah. yeah, it's a great photo. And besides, you know, inroads in music, many many African American writers came from Harlem, and it it was just this um, this amazing place where. Uh, where, where highly educated African Americans, after leaving the South, really came and and uh, and and uh, the arts really blo- just blossomed there. Yeah, precisely. Yes. So uh, th- I, that's why we thought that the name Harlem Quartet for a quartet that that uh, uh, has a very specific mission and is dedicated individually. All the members uh, always you know, strive for excellence in, in classical music, regardless regardless of our background, ethnic background. It's just something that uh, kind of like um, oversees any ethnic background. The, the devotion to music is, is almost like a, I don't know, it's, it's something deeper than your own background. But we found each other and we found that uh, we wanted to share that with uh, people that look more like us. And... Uh, 
and what better name the Harlem Quartet to to express that um, sentiment? Right. Now, you expanded your, your repertoire, you said, because you were trying to appeal to a younger audience. And so besides classical, you played jazz, Latin, some contemporary works. And I love this term. I read that you are considered stylistically bilingual. <laughs> and that's, that's uh, yeah, I think I came up with that because my native language, as you can probably hear, is Spanish. I'm, uh, uh, I was born in Havana, Cuba. And... Uh, I've heard that uh, that bilingual, uh, that my kids are bilingual. I, I've heard that term, and uh, that is a really good term uh, because it means you are uh, native to both. Mm-hmm. And uh, and although it's not entirely correct in our in our case, we we came up to jazz out of necessity, uh, just like actually I believe all language. <laughs> originally started from humans trying to communicate, communicate, right? So we were trying to communicate with these kids who very, they're very honest audience. So we, we lost their attention quite often. And, uh, and then trying to reach out to them and make connections, uh, we started playing Take the A Train. Because again, the, the, the subway stop, it was very it's few steps from many of the schools that we were playing at. And, uh, and when we, we saw that they could tap their, you know, their fingers, uh, bob their heads, we were like, yes, that's, that's exactly what you should pro that's, that's the feeling when we play a Mozart, uh, Allegro, that kind of like invigorating feeling. And, and then we, you know, we, we kept expanding. We do like, uh, a conga, let's say by my father and switch it to a minuet by Haydn. And said, so what these two things have in common? And nobody will, you know, raise their hands. And when they actually figured it, figured that they're both dances, it's just a one dance. It was a lot older from a different region in the world. And right away, we we go into geography. We go into history. Uh, we go into Cinderella. You know, these big dresses, that's what they used to wear. So they couldn't dance like conga. They had to be a little more, a little slower, more elegant. And they start putting pieces together. And before you know, the, this story in their heads becomes a vivid uh, experience. And next time we play a minuet, it's no longer this foreign, weird thing that, you know, the musicians in the Titanic <laughs> used to play, like they told us. Uh, but something, you know, full of life and stories and imagery. And, and we could tell how... If we if we visit a school uh, more than once, we could tell how they recognize what it is, what a canon is, and it's such a fulfilling uh, fulfilling mission to to do that. It's just we we were really happy people doing this. Mm-hmm. On your website, which is harlemquartet.com, you can you can listen to Visionary, and it's this amazing compilation. You you hear Mendelssohn, you know, so classical music, and then you hear jazz with Chick Corea played side by side. And that's really delightful. And and you can kind of understand a little bit more about what you were talking about, the similarities between classical music and jazz. Those similarities do exist. Absolutely. And, and one thing that um, we love talking about is how one uh, genre trains you to do the other actually better. And what I mean is um, when you practice uh, jazz pieces, 
you have to be on your toes because you don't know what your friends will throw at you. So you have to be really, really quick to respond and be, uh, you know, have good ensemble. And for that, we have to read these micro uh, micro movements in the body language and, and sort of like read ahead of time what the your partner will do so that you can catch that moment and, and play, let's say, that chord together. And guess what? When we play Haydn, uh, and reading and studying carefully, we realize that a lot of it is also impro. The, the language is improvisatory, although it's written down note by note. The actual spirit, be, you know, behind a big slur that comes to the next chord is very similar to a lick in jazz. And in order to perform that uh, and do justice, I, I think we have to we have to pretend we are improvising that in the moment and have bring that freshness to it and, and that playfulness. And if we didn't have the jazz training, it would be a little bit more complicated to be the, that spontaneous. Like we, we really truly take risk playing uh, classical music without changing any notes, any rhythm. The delivery is very conversational and very uh, spontaneous. And again, it helps the fact that we play jazz. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you... Yeah. You must have mastered the the playfulness you you called it uh, of of that genre because in 2013 you won a Grammy award for the collaboration on Hot House with Chick Corea. Yeah, that was uh, really great. Uh, I mean, it's, I mean, Chick Corea is one of these people that really brought our jazz playing to a different level. Uh, before that, we were playing arrangements and uh, kind of intuitively. Uh, performing jazz, uh, using our ears, making sure our style was not like an opera singer trying to sing blues because it doesn't go. Uh, but then once we met Chick, uh, you know, it's a direct apprenticeship. Uh, you know, we constantly touring with him. We really picked up uh, a lot of um, jazz idiosyncrasies that, uh, as he said it himself, the schools are not enough. You, you have to really be around, as he would say, around the cats. You really have to pick it up from from the job. Is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, theory is not enough. Mm-hmm. So we feel really, really fortunate to be able to, uh, to, to have that chance of touring with him. And of course, it's great to have the, the award as well. Since your Carnegie Hall debut back in 2006, you've you know you've traveled all over the world performing. Um, besides performing with jazz, you know luminaries like Chick Corea, I know you've played with uh, one of my favorites, Eddie Palmieri. Um, but then you've also played for President Obama at the White House and other world leaders. So we feel so incredibly fortunate that you're coming to our community. Oh my gosh, that was uh, playing for uh, President Obama and the First Lady Michelle at, at the White House. It's truly still a highlight. And uh, uh, funny enough, you know, performing wasn't as nerve, nerve-wracking as we thought. But then there was a moment where, uh, you know, a, a very elegant lady with a uniform said, uh, uh, Pressy and I first lady are ready to meet you. And we were like, oh, what? I, we, thought, <laughs> we thought it might come to that, but we were not promised. When we were not promised that we'd do that. Um but yes, we were uh, invited to meet them and have a, an official picture uh, at, at that special place where you only take a picture with acting presence, I was told later. Um, and then 
my gosh, uh, we, I think we all lost our <laughs> power of speech. <laughs> uh, it was it was really fun. And uh, I never forget, you know, President Obama had this quality that although he only gives you three seconds, let's say five seconds, in these five seconds, he's completely devoted, his attention is completely focused on, on you. So I remember leaving with this sense of, of being a dignitary. I, I just felt like, Wow, he this guy sees every everybody like like they were you know potential leaders or something mm-hmm. like that and and I, I carry that that sense every time I remember it's a, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, that's such a gift that certain people have to make you feel that that you're important no matter who, no matter who you are. Exactly. You know, I've been thinking you're you're so fortunate to be able to do what you love and what nourishes you, which is playing music. And combining that with community building and, and social justice work, and um, musicians do have a voice; a, they have a platform on uh, social issues. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I believe I know classical musicians probably are not as um, exposed, let's say, as, as, know, as a pop figures or actors or something like that. But uh, but we're equally influential if we if we turn into certain things like being ambassadors for music in in forgotten places uh i think that goes a long way we were really happy we were um chose chosen by the state department to go to um places like ethiopia and uh, south africa uh, and um, just being able to to bring classical music to corners of the world where uh, it means a lot more than just art it means a chance to to be connected to something that goes beyond the survival instincts of humans, but it goes to the soul and the 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 essence of I believe every human being and uh, and being able to to do that and have that sort of like anthropological experience because it's more than just playing classical music for Harlem kids when you go to a place where they just never heard an instrument a violin or something like that, um, and you see the reaction, then you're even more convinced that it's not a cultural thing. It's a human, uh, it's a human need to communicate. And for some reason, music actually expresses the same stuff uh, everywhere. It, it's just crazy. It's universal. Uh, yes. Yeah. But one thing is to repeat the words, and another thing is to actually play for people that literally never heard your instrument or the composer you're playing, and still get a reaction that is very uh, authentic and positive, then you really start getting it. <laughs> now, I know your father was a uh, famous composer, and your mother was a pianist. Your brother Aldo is also also plays the piano, and he's a composer. Oh my gosh, yes. My brother is a phenomenal composer and, and pianist, and we, we, we had the fortune of uh, touring with him as well a couple of years ago. And um, talking of which, um, um, my brother and I uh, are featured in, in a movie. It's a documentary about our lives and uh, how, due to um, uh, geopolitical uh, reasons, our life have been apart. He grew up in Cuba while I grew up outside. And this movie actually goes through um, uh, this amazing uh, reconnection uh, that we're, we were able to have, um, and and it's beautiful. It's called uh, Two Brothers, 
so if you Google Gavilan Brothers, something like that, it's going to come up. It's a bilingual title. It's uh, Los Hermanos slash Two Brothers. And it will be uh, featured in PBS uh, this fall, sometime this fall. Well, congratulations on, in advance on the release of that film. <laughs> Thank you, Caroline. I'm curious about your own personal background. I, I know you are from Cuba originally, and you grew up in a very musical family. How old were you when you first played a musical instrument? I was um, I was six, turning seven, and um, my my actually I was tricked into the violin. My dad brought a violin <laughs> from a troop. I you were tricked. Yeah, I was absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I wish I was. I had like a wonderful like romantic story, but nah. My dad, my dad is a conductor and composer, and he brought this toy violin from uh, Bulgaria or something like that. I, I remember it was an Eastern European country, and I was just looking at it like, oh, too bad this is not a little car or like a you know like a scooter or something. This is well, this is interesting. So I start plucking it, and before you know it, this little game of plucking the violin turned into a Russian teacher screaming at me at home. I'm like, what? <laughs> what kind of toy is this that I get troubled? <laughs> I get troubled for, uh, and you know, that's the truth. I was tricking to it, and now I'm so happy I was tricking to it. <laughs> and you moved to Moscow when you were very young to take some advanced studies. You were a teenager then. Yes, um, that was actually a, a, a life, uh, you know, changing. Uh, decision that my mom and my family made. Uh, so when I was 14, I left with my mom. Uh, I always remember how how sweet she was and how uh, incredible that gesture is. Yeah, um, yeah. so I went, I went to Russia and I, I, uh, I studied there for four years. I finished my, uh, my high school there. It was a boarding school and I'm forever grateful to my mom for um, accompanying me. And then after that, you continue to travel. I mean, you went to Spain and ultimately ended up in New York City. So you've had quite a, uh, you had quite an amazing training. Uh, yes, I, I was very fortunate with my training. And I think all of this travel uh, honestly prepared me to my vision today of the universal quality of music. And uh, because being able to, I mean, being exposed to so many different cultures so early on, it makes you go for the common denominator in, in people. And I think that, you know, the ultimate common, common denominator is, is what I do, the music. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you ultimately came to the United States? Uh, I was um, short of 21. I remember because I had my 21st uh, birthday here and it was a big deal for people because apparently I could go drinking and I was uh, not interested in, <laughs> at all because already in Europe people whenever they want a beer they did it so I, I was so like curious what's the big deal about 21 <laughs> were there yeah. other surprises for you looking back like com- contrasting your experience here in the, in the United States and the other countries you lived with your home uh, country of, of Cuba were there differences in terms of of uh, how young people were exposed to music and were there were was it the same situation in Cuba where where there's certain communities who just don't have as much access? I think it's true to to very you know probably every country uh, that there's people with more access than others. Like I believe just being born in Havana to a musical family places me in a different position than if I was in a province somewhere 
uh, you know, born into a farmer's family. But with that said, um, I think, uh, frankly, I, I think in Cuba, uh, if you do show uh, an inclination or a talent for music, the, the setup is such that you probably will be nourished slightly uh, easier, um, especially because the financial uh, position is not so crucial. I, I feel here you really need to have more means in order to afford the private lessons, that kind of thing. And uh, as opposed to, you know, if you're born again, not everywhere in Cuba, but if you're born in, in Havana and uh, you pass your your natural, uh, you know, gifting, we, we have this gift gifted exam, like, you know, make sure you have uh, musical talent. And if you're taking in this type of schools, then you don't pay anything for it. So there is a little bit of, you know, there is definitely a, a little more um, uh, access, even if you're poor, let's say, in a place like Cuba. Mm-hmm. But you're hopefully helping to break some of those barriers down here, which which we just love. Absolutely, and uh, here also, like if you show talent, uh, I believe you can you can really develop as well. I mean, it's hard to to discount people that uh, don't have the means because I'm sure there are many cases like that. But at the same time, there are many organizations and foundations. And uh, if you have extraordinary talent, uh, I believe uh, you can give it a shot. Let's put it that way. Well, Imar Gavilan, thank you so much for talking today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for giving me so much time. Don't miss the opportunity to hear the Grammy Award-winning Harlem Quartet at one of their upcoming free performances Monday, October 21st at the Wesley United Methodist Church in Muscatine at 2 p.m. or on Tuesday, October 22nd at the Butterworth Center in Moline at both 3 p.m. and at 7 p.m. There will also be a ticketed public concert on Friday, October 25th at the Trinity Anglican Church in Rock Island. Tickets for that can be purchased at the door or at quadcityarts.com. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities, for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.